This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. How deep does the rabbit hole go? In that scene from The Matrix, a character known as Neo takes the red pill and finds out that his conscious experience is actually a hallucination forced upon him by artificially intelligent machines. Meanwhile, on our plane of existence, researchers are trying to use AI, neuroscience, and quantum physics to figure out the true nature of consciousness. Spoiler alert, it ain't easy. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, as we take the red pill and chat with George Musser about his latest book, Putting Ourselves Back in the Equation, which focuses on the study of human consciousness and how it relates to other mysteries of the universe. During his career as an award-winning science journalist, George Musser has handled some pretty far-out subjects, ranging from the Big Bang and black holes to quantum entanglement and the search for alien life. But one of the farthest-out subjects has to do with what's going on right inside our heads. For millennia, philosophers and scientists have puzzled over the nature of consciousness. Musser doesn't exactly come up with the answer to the ultimate question in his new book, Putting Ourselves Back in the Equation, but he does lay out the hypotheses that scientists are working on, and perhaps the most interesting thing about their work is that it could help solve other puzzles that have been bugging physicists for decades, such as the disconnect between relativity and quantum mechanics, or the role that observers play in formulating our conception of the cosmos. Musser's book isn't always an easy read. You have to wrap your brain around concepts such as Boltzmann brains and neural networks. But if you're curious whether AI agents or animals can be conscious, or whether our perception of the world is just a matrix-like simulation, this just might be the book for you. When Dominica Fetaplace and I chatted with George Musser over a Zoom connection, I started out by asking him about the audience he had in mind while he was writing the book. It's meant for my mom, for her to read it. And she's a lay reader. Anyone who um, is interested and it does, I will say it's not, it is something that's going to take a bit of work. I mean, it, it's not, well, maybe work's the wrong word, bit of concentration. It's not something you're just going to read on the beach probably, but it is certainly designed for anyone with an interest in physics, AI, neuroscience, cognitive science, and philosophy. What is it about? I mean, besides the buzzwords, AI, quantum physics, consciousness, what do you want the typical reader to take away from this book? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I can answer that or try to answer it on, on a couple of levels. First, there's kind of a, the lower level of the, the details. There's just so much fascinating insight you can gain by considering how these different fields collide and intersect and, and interact with one another, just insights into our own functioning of our minds that I think I personally could take away into my own life. One might be the importance of error, that 
neural networks are trained by the errors they produce. And so our own brains are trained by the errors that we create. So error is part of creativity. It's not antithetical to it. It's part of learning. If you're not making a mistake, you're probably not really learning. So that's one of these kind of granular insights that I took away while researching this project. Mm -hmm. And I hope that my reader will. But there's also kind of a, a, a higher level. And one, one of the ways I like to put it is that academia, research, science, intellectual life is pigeonholed. We have, well, just at the highest level, science and the humanities. Then within sciences, we've got the individual sciences. Even within the individual sciences, physics, experimentalists, the theorists, the astrophysicists, all these different subspecialties. And I think there's certain problems that are becoming more and more acute in foundational science that require us to bridge those gaps to kind of de-pigeonhole all our intellectual life. And understanding our brains is really maybe, well, it's certainly the subject of this book, but foremost among those, those puzzles that require an intersectional or, or, or interactional approach like this. So that's kind of the framing of this. But within that, it, it, it what I was struck by early on while well, thinking about this some years back is to how it's multi-directional. So it's probably without a lot of thinking, you can say, well, yeah, I can see how physics with its mathematical methods, its experimental sensibilities can be applied to AI. And there's a, actually quite an interesting long history. The entire field of AI has been developed with the aid of understanding from physics. And neuroscience, likewise, is a data-heavy field. There's just a lot of information we have from imaging of the brain, of, of the various theories of its functioning, and so forth. And the methods of physics can help. And a lot of the book discusses that. What's more surprising, and actually what really grabbed my editor when I started this whole endeavor, was that physics itself needs help. Physics itself has long commented on the need to understand the observer as part of theorizing. This especially comes out in quantum physics, but it, not only quantum physics. So you have the, the big shots of quantum physics, Einstein, Bohr, and, all, and that generation, and also their, their counterparts today, saying, well, we need to understand the observer. There's this kind of blurring, this epistemic issue comes up. But that would always be kind of the last five minutes of their talk. That would always be the last chapter, the last paragraph in their book. They would say that. But I think now we can go, we can probably go a little bit further than that kind of manifesto of it. We can begin to talk about specific theories in neuroscience and philosophy of mind that can help on these questions that physics raises, that physics poses, that physics confronts, having to do with the, the strange and almost paradoxical role the observer seems to play in our understanding of the physical world. And in fact, that issue of the future of physics and what's wrong with physics, that's kind of been a theme of yours in your previous books, like The Complete Idiot's Guide to String Theory <laughs> or Spooky Action at a Distance. And so how does this book fit into those past works that you've done? Yeah, it's it's like like a dovetail and, and carpentry. Each book has kind of fit in or, and it really emerged from my thinking on the on the one that came before it. So, spooky action at a distance came out of Idiot's Guide to String Theory, 
And of course, Idiot's Guide to String Theory has its own precursors in my magazine writing and, and just other things that I've, I've worked on. So for Idiot's Guide to String Theory, complete Idiot's Guide to String Theory, which is in that same very series of Idiot's Guides along with Idiot's Guide to Investing, Pool, Home Renovations, and so forth. So that was kind of a, a branching out of, uh, attempted branching out of, of their brand. I think it, I fear it may have ended with my book. Um, it, it, I, I really wanted to distill quantum physics, which I had studied like every student of in physics does uh, in, as a college student, as a, as a graduate student. I kind of felt, let me, let me really nail it this time. So I worked really hard. And of course, I didn't nail it because it's an incredibly subtle subject. It's in a way not that complicated. Ironically, the mathematics is actually the basic mathematics it isn't that hard. It's really just algebra. And yet it, it admits of this, this infinite complexity of, of what we see in the world and all sorts of paradoxes. So I did my best with that chapter and then bracketed that whole question, put it aside, and then came back a few years later after. Every time you write a book, at least with, with me, I kind of have to recover from it. And as long as, oh my God, I can't even think about writing another one. But then the urge re, re, materializes on what is with you guys on on that too. And then for spooky action, I wanted to really take the arguably the central or maybe the most, the deepest, shall we say, conundrum of of quantum quantum mechanics. This this spooky action at a distance as Einstein called it, this odd synchrony between uh, measurements that that occurs and I, I think the novelty of that book was that I connected that to a lot of thinking about emergent space-time, which is a separate area of physics that comes a lot out of understanding of gravity. And that mm-hmm. space-time, the continuum of space-time may actually not be a continuum and, and may itself be a construct in the way that any material substance uh, is, is a construct. Water is made of molecules and, and so forth. And so space may be made of molecules or of, of some kind. And then in thinking about that, um, both the subject matter and also the people I encountered on that, the questions of the mind, of consciousness in particular, but also perception, cognition, other aspects of our mental life intruded. And I, I talk about a little bit in the current book that I go to these conferences. I love going to conferences, by the way. I love, I love just deep diving and in, in, into the subject and talking to people, especially kind of after hours. And they kept talking about the mind. It's like, dude, you're a physicist. The mind's not supposed to be on your agenda. That's something you leave to these other pigeonholes of, of academic life. Yeah, and stay in and yet, your lane. <laughs> stay in your lane, people. No. So um, that... That, that really struck me. And then I think there's been just incredible uh, efflorescence of activity at the intersection of these fields. It's just, I, whether it yields answers or final resolutions or whatever, who knows, but certainly it's a it's a fun subject to be, to be thinking about and working on. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about this book are all the different conversations you had with people. After hours, you felt like you were there as the reader. And then all these people definitely disagreed with one another, contradicted one another. And so you just, you did get this like diversity of thought. I learned so many new things. Um, I'm wondering, is there something uniquely human about consciousness? 
perhaps it's on a sliding scale that could include animals and AI agents? I think that's an incredibly important central question to this whole field. And I think actually the physicists are actually help pressing on that very point, the kind of ubiquity or of consciousness, or if you flip it, how specific is it to humans and maybe primates, let's say, or mammals. And I think from a physics point of view, again, and which may not be right, by the way, from a physics point of view, there's nothing specific to humans about consciousness. It could be a continuum, certainly going down to what we would actually consider inanimate, certainly mindless objects could a particle be conscious. I mean, you could even start at that level and begin to, to think it through. And now, of course, the difficulty is how to test that given, and this is always what comes up in consciousness studies and what makes it such a difficult and also kind of interesting science is we really have only direct access to our own consciousness. Literally, George, me, has access only to George's consciousness. They're probably not even fully that. I, I know there's aspects of myself I don't understand and never will as do we all. But then you have to extrapolate out from my experience to other humans, to primates, to my dog. Uh, and then you, you wonder where that, that stops. And a physicist would say there's actually no natural boundary. Now, for a biologist or, I mean, I'm conflating an entire field of millions of people, of course, um, a lot of biologists would say, no, actually, it is specific to mammals or primates. There's some or that organ exactly the same ability or capability in our brain that is specific to us. But this book really does take tentatively the view that consciousness does exist on a continuum and that can be found in any kind of system. And there were two theories of consciousness that came up again and again in this book. One was integrated information theory. The other was called predictive coding. Could you explain a little bit more about these two theories and the distinctions between them? So I focus on these two theories, and just let me preface this with a disclaimer. They're not the only theories. I'm actually writing now an article on global workspace theory, which is another really super interesting theory, but that actually it does suggest consciousness is specific to relatively few species that have a certain kind of cognitive functioning to them. But I focus on predictive coding or predictive processing. They're kind of synonyms and integrated information theory because they're the two first widely accepted or, or widely entertained, nothing's accepted, widely entertained theories of consciousness. And physicists have helped on them and are helping. And those theories bear on the questions of physics. So it fit into my whole kind of interdisciplinary theme. So integrated information theory is fascinating theory. I should say both of these theories take neural networks, which we think of as artificial systems, but of course we have a neural network in our own heads, or actually multiple neural networks in our in our own brains. It takes the concept of a network as, as primitive and then kind of asks what kind of network do you need to have consciousness and what kind of properties does a network need to have? So integrated information theory looks at the network, uh, looks like a kind of a spider web or maybe a airline route map or something like that, train network. And it looks for the, what you might call the emergent properties the group dynamics of that network, the extent to which parts of the network are working together to create something above and beyond, you know, more, uh, more than the, the parts that go into them. So it's really 
incredible theory mathematically because it actually is mathematical. This is one reason the physicists just really love it. That it's it's there are equations. There's there's you can write code. You can you can simulate the thing, and you can ask questions of is this network conscious? Is uh, how much consciousness does it have? So it has that continuum aspect that you had mentioned. You can actually rank the frog to the fish. You know, you can put do some kind of ranking of different consciousness down to AI systems or maybe up to AI systems. And you can then go further. This often isn't discussed with the theory, but it's really an incredibly exciting part of it. You can ask what the system is conscious of. What are the qualities of its experience? And does it, uh, and you can kind of break it down. They, they take in space. What is it like to be embedded in space and to see things laid out in space and to have sizes and positions and so forth? And those kind of have aspects of our experience. And you can dissect those aspects of our experience and relate those to this kind of emergence or synchrony of function in, in, in the brain. So it's, it's a very cool theory. Some people are skeptical about it too. So it's, but I think we're, we're I should just, again, general comment. All these theories are tentative and we're at a kind of, a, not an early, but maybe an early to middle stage of the development of the science. We kind of have to keep a lot of balls in the air and, and we don't know what's really going to, where they're going to land or whatever that metaphor of balls will, will be. So predictive coding is the idea that the brain is always trying to anticipate its kind of role in the body, its role. What, what is our brain meant for is to predict what's going to happen around us, to anticipate what's going to happen around us so we can get a jump on it. So we need that to survive in a complex environment to kind of create a mental model of the world that's kind of a little bit of the world inside us. And then we can run that and then see what's going to happen and then be ready for what, for what comes. And it comes out of the the realization, which really goes back to the 19th century and the early thinking on perception and on what later became known as neuroscience, kind of understanding of neurons, is that there's a delay. So I take information in my in my eyes, optic nerve, visual cortex, the different layers of, of the brain, and it takes, I don't know, a tenth of a second. It, it depends on the the situation and the modality, but roughly say a tenth of a second to form and interpret all that into a field of experience. I see the world around me. Now, if we were a t always a tenth of a second behind, we literally couldn't do anything. You certainly couldn't play music. You couldn't walk. You, you, you'd be hit by things all the time. The lion would come out and, and, and attack you, you know, whatever. So you need to be ahead of the game. And that's where this predictive idea comes in. And it's not just humans, of course, that need that on the savanna during our evolutionary heritage, but any organism does. So this this also suggests this theory that consciousness is on a continuum and that even a bacterium or, or maybe even virus or something that's not conventionally thought to be alive might have a degree of consciousness because it needs to formulate an idea of the world and, and kind of condition its own actions on that formulation of the world. And do you have a favorite of any of these theories or are you just taking a wait and see approach with all of this? I, a little bit of both. I love them all. You know, it's one of these kind of situations where, and I think actually that is the intellectual value that I, I'm an outsider to these fields. Um, I have a training in, uh, actually my fields in planetary science. Um, I do reason planetary science, but I'm really an outsider, honestly, 
now. And I haven't done scientific research in, in a long time. But in return for not having that day in, day out deep experience, I'm able to, I think, rise above or somehow observe these theories more dispassionately. And I see value in them all. And I, by the way, this is true of my, my thinking of quantum physics, my thinking on theories of so-called theories of everything. I try not to be committed to them. I try to not to have the scholarly commitment. And I think that would be the value that my book would have that is wonderful books, by the way, on Andy Clark, for instance, has a recent book on, uh, he's one of the people developing predictive coding. He has a recent book on predictive coding and it's great. I love the book, but he's committed to it. So I think I, by virtue of not being committed to it, can kind of evaluate the, the different areas and see the commonalities among them because I think there are a lot of threads running through all these ideas. If consciousness is on a continuum, uh, I think one of the key questions is, can the machines that we're building, can the AI agents that were created become as fully conscious as humans? And if so, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, so two questions. Um, can we build machine consciousness or can machine consciousness maybe inadvertently be built? Um, can it arise on our machines and would that be a, a good thing or a bad thing? So, and this touches on some of the science fiction issues that you guys love talking about. There's a diversity of opinion on this. Some say yes, some say no. Or maybe to be more specific, some say our current machine architectures, the types of microprocessors and GPUs that we have in our current devices would not or would be capable of machine consciousness. I think almost everyone who thinks about this in all these different uh, fields says, if we were to replicate a neuron in silicon, if we were to create a neuromorphic computer that would actually be very, very true to the biology, yes, it would be conscious. So there's nothing, uh, this is where kind of a scientific approach kind of departs from some philosophies or some religions on this question. If you can replicate the function of a biological system in an artificial system, yes, it will be conscious. There's a, a, a view that you wouldn't need to inject some kind of soul or anything in, into the body. It would just be conscious by virtue of its physical construction. So the, the question scientifically is what kind of physical construction would be needed for the consciousness to arise? And the different theories have different views on this. Integrated information theory would say you need some kind of, as the name implies, some integration of the system. The system has to have some interesting group dynamics in it that rise above the, the parts, that rise above the neurons, essentially, and give you this additional feature, consciousness. Uh, predictive processing would have it come out, the consciousness rather, come out from the, the kind of model building that goes on within that system. And the way the model building would include the model builder and it'd be kind of a loop that would be created from that. And the global workspace theory that I'm thinking about a lot these days would say, if you build a global workspace, one of these kind of, it's a type of memory essentially that's within the system that the, the, the network or machine generally would, would be conscious. So I think the answer is yes, we can definitely build machine consciousness. I think an interesting question will be whether we will do it out of desire, out of engineering necessity, or maybe aspects of consciousness to help with their, with cognition. The, the, the many deficiencies of chat GPT might be uh, ameliorated with what you might think of as a conscious component to it. And uh, so that's the question. So yeah, 
AI systems can, can definitely be conscious. And this is, I've written elsewhere on this question, not so much in this particular book. I, I analyze it a little bit. Uh, and this is actually one of the reasons you really need the theory of consciousness. This is kind of like, it's not just a scientific enterprise out of curiosity. It's like we pretty darn well had better understand consciousness if we are to make judgments about the machine systems and, and ask, are they conscious? Because you need a theory, a consciousness to answer that question. So is ChatGPT conscious? David Chalmers had a paper, uh, came out of a talk he gave just about a year ago. When chat shortly after chat tpt was was our the initial version of it was released and asked according to these theories is chat tpt conscious and his answer was no and he kind of or probably no there's no definitive statement you can make because it lacked certain abilities each of those theories had so it lacked a kind of looping that you the kind of feedback loops that you would have in some of the theories it lacked the 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 memory, the workspace memory I mentioned with in conjunction with global workspace theory, so-called, it, it lacked the integration of integration information theory. So ChatGPT probably not conscious, and but a successor, GPT-5, maybe? Okay, would that be a good thing? That's a really big question. <laughs> um, typically what happens in Terminator, or one of these scenarios is the machine becomes self-aware. Forbin Project did this too. And... Boom, it takes over the world. Of course, everyone gives it the access to nuclear codes. That's what you always do to your AI systems. Of course. Very smart uh, choice. No, let's not do that. But I, to the extent I have a, a view on this, and as opposed to kind of representing other views, I think I don't see consciousness as a particular threat. I think dumb machines, unconscious machines, are, as is proven in today's world, extremely dangerous, quite capable of, of annihilating. Uh, humanity already. The conscious machines don't add any particular capability that would enhance their, at least in my view, in their, their danger to humanity. Uh, if anything, I think probably the danger goes the other way, that we'll mistreat them. <laughs> That's unfortunately also in the history of, of human beings. We tend to mistreat until we kind of grow out of that. Um, beings that clearly are conscious, unequivocally conscious, and yet we still, i.e. other humans, we still mistreat them. So I'm personally not worried about conscious, the building of consciousness into AI systems. As you mentioned, uh, the rapid rise of ChatGPT has underlined the urgency of trying to figure out what consciousness is all about or actually what these programs are doing. If it's not thinking, what is it? Have the developments of the past couple of years related to generative AI and chat GPT, et cetera, have those changed the minds of researchers working in this field? Are there some things that researchers now say, oh, it's different from what I thought it was because look at chat GPT. The success of generative AI, chat GPT, and then of course, if there's a whole other music generation, art generation, and other types of apps that also are generative, have surprised AI researchers, not so much in their abilities, but in the speed of the development of the field. It's one of these things like nuclear fusion. It's always 20 years out. So wherever you are, 1990, 20 years out, 2000, 20 years out, it always seems to be moving. Of course, there may have been progress in that more recently, and I hope we'll eventually get some kind of workable fusion reactor but it's one of these things that always seems to be in the future, right? And so it is with a system of the capability of a chat GPT and, and the other 
ChatGPT-like systems that Google and the other companies have, have created. Uh, it's you can talk to it. You can you can talk to the thing. It's ridiculous, right? You can type English or actually a number of languages. You can type broken English. You can you can invent a language and it'll figure out what you've invented. It's incredible what these will do. So I think people thought that would happen, but they, it kind of it's a lot faster. And it brings forward the timetable in a lot of people's minds for what's known as a GI. So you put a G into your AI, that's general intelligence, artificial general intelligence. And that is a system that is capable of a wide range of functions of, of learning on the fly, basically a closer stand-in to uh, an animal or even a human or even a superhuman brain. Um, so I think it's accelerated things, but not. it's been a quantitative but not a qualitative shift for people, these developments. Do you think that generative AI could teach us more about consciousness, despite not being conscious itself? Absolutely. And I think it, it does that in a few ways and, and probably will continue to do it in, in a few ways. I think, take a step back. What is a generative AI? So our brains are generative eyes, right? H eyes are you know, natural eyes. We create little worlds in our minds. That's part of our understanding of, of the experience that we have is we don't, it's not a processing pipeline where we take something in one end and spits it out the other end, just like an ordinary computer program or an equation or, or an algorithm would be. We have an internal dynamic in our heads like the generative AI systems, they have uh, people, I'll use the word understanding. It's a very freighted term in this field. And it's certainly not like human understanding for various reasons. It's very brittle. It doesn't seem to be grounded in common sense or intuitive physics. But there is some kind of understanding of a sort in the generative systems that is eerily familiar. It comes from experience just as our understanding comes from experience, be it our evolutionary experience that led to where we are today or our learned experience, um, either in utero as, as, as children and, and throughout our entire lives. So the generative AI has certain qualities to it that are, are very reminiscent of a conscious being, an internal mental life. Now, for these very reasons that I mentioned a little earlier, and there's been some papers, interesting analysis on this, probably ChatGPT and GPT, the system on which it is, is based, is not conscious. It doesn't quite get there. But it's the kind of thing we can imagine with some further work. It could be the basis of, it could be elaborated into a conscious system. And that would be huge because I think it was fine when you said what we cannot build, we cannot understand, or some aphorism like that. So, and in, in we're probably never really going to understand ourselves unless we can create something like ourselves. Um, and this is throughout the history of, of, of science that I mean, sometimes it goes one way, sometimes the other way. Sometimes we develop such a great understanding that we can build a simulacrum or whatever we're, we were understanding. Sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes engineers build the thing and then physicists back out an explanation for it. So I think it's going to be like that with AI. They're probably just going to develop in tandem. And in fact, it is developing tandem. Um, vision science and image recognition networks have developed like just right alongside one another for the past, well, since the 50s, really. 
So the understanding of the visual cortex, of the features that our visual system recognizes, it goes at the levels of, of recognition within it that we look for lines and larger geometric objects then up all the way up to full objects. That has informed and been informed by development of image recognition systems really since the, the, the late 50s. And I, so it will be, as you've anticipated in your question, with consciousness studies, I think the two will happen together. Some folks, and I have in mind science fiction author Ted Chang, who has written a lot about AI, say they're worried about AI not so much because of what the software would do, but what the people who are running the AI could do, that they could take advantage of the fact, for example, that AI presents an illusion of personhood to manipulate us civilians. Is that something that researchers worry about or do they focus on the scientific issues and leave the social effects of applications such as chat GPT to other people? No, the researchers, all the ones I've talked to are, including the ones who are the best at the technical side. In fact, there's almost a correlation. The ones who are best at the technical side are also the ones that worry the most about the use of these systems. So, the worries are multifaceted. I think, as, as I maybe have talked about a bit before, there's the existential risk question, which I think probably is premature to ask, shall we say. Maybe it is an issue, but not yet. The immediate concern, in fact, we're already seeing it, doesn't have to be hypothesized, is the misuse of generative AI and of machine learning in general to, uh, I mean, spread misinformation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to know how widespread those are. And people do correct. People are, people are smart. I mean, it's easy to be cynical sometimes, but people do recognize the users of the assistant, recognize their limitations. So I don't know how many students are still using ChatGPT to write their essays, given maybe that was something they did when they first saw it, but, or the lawyer who uses it to write the brief. I mean, that makes the newspaper, but is it really that common? I hope not. I, I will say just as pulling back a little bit, I think discussions like the one we're having, the discussions like you've had before on this podcast, mm -hmm. the things I've talked about in my book are as are giving people the information they need. And, and there's always going to be more information that you need. So it's an ongoing process to, to use these systems responsibly because goodness knows, of course, people are not going to use it responsibly. You give, you give people a stick, they won't use it responsibly. So, you know, this is just another tool that will be used irresponsibly, but will also be used for great good as well, I, I hope. In your book, you touch upon some way out ideas that have been floated by the likes of, say, Elon Musk to the effect that we might be living in a matrix-like simulation or that our minds can be uploaded into hardware to achieve some sort of immortality. How much traction are those ideas getting among experts in the field? Yeah, it's hard to to say. It's not. I am not a poll on it, or I, I, I. The people I talk to are, I guess, at some level motivated by those kinds of big schemes, but don't think they're realistic. Certainly not in the short term. And in fact, I was just talking to one physicist, Turn, who also does a lot of work in AI. In fact, really, he's more of an AI person now, and he he just thinks a lot of those scenarios of mass simulations of brains just neglect some of the physical constraints. I mean, it takes a lot of money, computing power, electricity, data, people to train GPT-4 even. I don't know, hundreds of millions? I don't know what the number is in, in dollars. So there's, 
And that, that I should say, that those costs reflect basic physical constraints on what they're attempting to do here. So to create a society of, of them, like you have in the Matrix, where while there's, the Matrix, of course, has different types of characters, they're actually the humans are plugged in and they're seeing a simulated reality. And you can ask whether that's realistic, but then you have the agents, you've got the, the computer programs that themselves are basically GPT-10s or something in that machine. And just, uh, of course, again, you kind of, oh, the Matrix almost anticipated this, the kind of economic and environmental devastation that that wreaked on the, on the Earth, basically like toasted the planet, right? The amount of energy that was required for running these machines. So unless Earth is re- reduced to a, a cinder in this way, I it, it maybe it will be, but God help us. <laughs> I, I, I don't think running uh, large numbers of, of, of brain simulations to create societies within within the computer is really realistic. Um, and 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 actually, I think I said this in the book. Why why would you do it? Why do you care? Why would you want to have a simulated society? I mean, Sim different City. science fiction stories po- posit different rationales for it, but you don't really want to do it, honestly. You mentioned the observer effect in your book, which is a topic that's come up on this podcast before. So um, could you explain what the observer effect is and where do you come down on that issue? Yeah, so this is really, really fascinating. So there's different observer effects, different types of them. And the one I elaborate on the most in the book is the one associated with quantum measurement. So we know we affect the world just by observing it. We know we affect the world by living in it, right? I can't not affect the world. Otherwise, I just wouldn't. By definition, I would I would be dead. So the question is whether our presence in the world has any more profound or more pervasive impacts. And quantum theory suggests that it does. And it's pretty... Um, Astounding, actually, what's happening. So let me give an example of a type of experiment, the type of effect that we might have on the world through that experiment. You might create a particle, a pair of particles, and in a superposition state, and it can be entangled with one another. So what that means is you create a pair of particles that have some kind of, it's hard to even put it in words. Um, there's some kind of bond between them. And I can elaborate on what that is in a second. But there's, there's something about the particles that are created because they're created together. So I've actually done this in my basement, just two floors down from me now. I've done this experiment using actual radioactive isotopes, which can, can through their decay, create a pair of, of particles. You have radioactive isotopes in your basement? And I bought it on the internet. It's amazing what you can buy on the internet. And I didn't have to go to the deep net for it. No, you can actually buy up to a certain degree of radioactivity and they'll ship it to you in UPS. It's kind of nuts when you, when you do it. But it can be done, and um, and I have all precautions. Don't worry, I've got a lead box. I got a Geiger counter around it, so I do I do take care. But I want to do this experiment that would show the creation of these uh, particle pairs. And when each particle is measured on its own, and you might measure properties such as polarization. So let's say you measure the polarization of the particle, and you measure just one of them, the answer is random. It's like a coin flip. In fact, I use this analogy all the time, as do other physicists, of a coin flip. So I measure its polarization and its 
according to some axis, and it's like flipping a coin. You measure your low end, it's like flipping a coin. So you got two coins. Here's what's strange is that the answers, the two coin flips are the same on both sides. So you flip the coin on one hand, on the other hand, you flip it in LA, you flip it on the moon, and you get the same answer as you, the other coin does. So this is this spooky action at a distance, or so-called that was the subject uh, that I delved into the last book. I want to get into a bit in this book. In this book, I'm less focused on what, how those two coins can be correlated in that way, which is ginormous mystery, than how the observer is, what the observer is doing in that whole picture. So, uh, or when the coin is flipped, you get this kind of random answer to it. So, what what happened prior to the coin flip? So, is does it have an answer? And it turns out it it's in this indeterminate state prior to the flipping of the coin. So it's neither heads, it's not tails, it's not on its edge. It's just not. There's just nothing about the coin that can be said. It's like maybe Schrodinger's cat's an even better example. Before you you put this cat into this superposition of live and dead. Yeah, and there's ways to do that. It can actually can be done. And before you open the box, is the cat alive or is it dead? And quantum theory says neither. It is neither alive nor dead. And the act of observing forces it into one of those two states. Collapses it is the, the ter terminology that's used. So this is a far more profound kind of creation of reality than you get by just walking down the pavement and leaving a, an impression in the in the ground. This is, you've brought about a property in the universe, polarization or alive and dead in, in or life and death in terms of the cat, for example, or, and there's many other examples that just wouldn't have existed before. So your presence seems to have been required to that. Now, how, why, what, what's going on here? This is opening up a door to a huge number of things. And to this day, the answer is 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 open it's not really known um of course if you ask people who are invested in this they'll say of course the answer is known here i've got the answer the answer is a but then you talk to the next person the answer is b so you get a lot of uh dissension on this so i think the this kind of takeaway message from that is we don't know yet uh, individuals may think they know but they we kind of really don't know what's going on here there's a lot of Thinking on the on this on this issue, this is where you get into the you know many worlds interpretation. It's where you get into different kinds of gravitational effects that might cause the collapse that we can we can go into new flight. But anyway, this is to go back to what you were asking. This is one of the ways that the the act of observation affects the reality. I love the examples that you cite in your book about personal experiences that hint at strange effects having to do with consciousness, uh, perhaps including the observer effect. For example, the idea that if you look at the second hand of a wall clock from a distance, you may initially perceive that the second hand is not moving. Are there other examples? So, I mean, this is, this is really, to me, one of the joys of, of neuroscience because it's, it's not only knowledge, but it's self-knowledge. So when you read a book on neuroscience, mine, and there's many, many others, so many wonderful ones, you can kind of relate to it. So I love writing about physics, God knows, the universe, but it's harder to relate to a particle, right? It's harder to relate to a galaxy or a, 
a natural symmetry or one of the subject matters of physics or field or something. But when we talk about our conscious experience, how is it generated? Could AIs have it? We are asking questions about ourselves. And it's just kind of cool sitting there reading and, and thinking um, about, about these, these things. So this clock example, does that go back to Leibniz? And this, I have a whole chapter on the kind of puzzles of time and space. And this, this is one thing I included in that chapter. So the distortions of our temporal experience. So when, if you just have a clock on a wall and it's one of those ones with a second hand that ticks, there's other kinds of clocks that were a sweep. So I'm talking about the ones that ticks and you just, you have it on the wall to your right and you look over to it quickly. The second hand's going to look like it's kind of lingering there for a little bit longer than it would. It doesn't seem regularly ticking like a metronome. It seems it got stuck a little bit. And that's, again, a, a vagary. It's kind of a, a part of our perceptual system having to do with, actually, I, I think it has to do with our saccades of our mind. Maybe it's not of our eye. It's, maybe it's not fully understood. It's compensation for the moment, or the movement, excuse me, of our eye as we shift our gaze to that. And then within the gaze, the, the continuous eye movement that our, our eyes do have. So there's a, I do a variant, talk about a variant on that experiment where you, you ask, put the clock at different distances from you and ask, what does it look like? And there'll come a distance where you're far enough away that the actual motion of it is so slight in angular terms. It's like such a small distance across your retina that you actually don't perceive the motion directly. And our brains actually have fascinating capabilities for direct detection of motion, just from the motion itself, and also from comparing the, the world at different points in time and kind of inferring motion from that. And those fail at a certain distance from, from the clock. And you'll see, you'll know the clock is moving if you keep looking back to it. Oh, it's now 10 seconds have gone by or 20 seconds, but you won't actually see it move. So this is very uncanny effect of something moving, but you actually don't directly detect it. It's almost like a series of, of movie you know, frames laid out um, before you. And it's just, it, it, we can probe through these kinds of self-experiments, the, the limitations and the workings of our own perception. And those, I mean, optical illusions, visual illusions, illusions of any sort, get at that too. The way you can hear tones kind of seeming to ascend forever, and yet they keep coming back to the, to, the, to the back of the octave and you get that kind of effect. Um, uh, I saw Paul McCartney in Giant Stadium last summer and I was unfortunately so far away and even the that with the ticket was expensive, but yeah. so far away that there was a time lag between the sound coming from the speakers and the the kind of view of Sir Paul up on um, playing guitar. And there was like this disjoint, you know, it's kind of really annoying actually. It's almost like bad dubbing. Uh, when you get that kind of effect and you have to, your brain isn't able to sync it up. But if I had walked forward, if I had gone down onto the um, floor of the arena, kept walking, there would come a point where I was close enough that they would snap into sync. And there's like a window, I can't remember what it is, 100 milliseconds or something like that, the sound travel time, that the brain ceases to perceive any delay at all. It just snaps. The brain says, ah, it's close enough to when he moved his lips. It must be exactly when he moved his lips and the brain right, joins them up. So you can do this experiment yourself next time you go to a concert or you go to a talk or 
Like if the Dalai Lama is speaking on a vast park, you can go to the far back and start walking towards the stage and see how far you can get to it. And you'll come to a point where again, your perception will shift. And it's really cool doing this. I do this. I've got my wife mad doing all these experiments around me all the time of, of um, self-experiments on our conscious perception and cognition. Well, thank you for that. I'll <laughs> try it next time. Um, we've mentioned The Matrix and Ted Chang, and I'm wondering if you have any other recommendations for science fiction or science nonfiction that covers consciousness. Yeah, there's so much, right? Um, I just finished this book. Uh, where is it? On um, um, Sleeping Beauties. Uh, this is really a cool book. It's not actually about consciousness. It's about biology. It has some culture in it as well, but I just finished it, so I'm really excited about this. And this is about how innovations can be latent, both in biology and in our culture. So things can be discovered and undiscovered and then rediscovered. Uh, inventions, for example, or cultural movements. Um, bacteria can have latent antibiotic resistance in them just by kind of their complicated metabolisms, for example. So that's that's a book I, I really recommend. I'm, I'm really into the broad theme of, and one reason I love Ted Chang, I'm into the broad theme of how alien contact will be weirder than we can even conceive of. So the idea of, in, in story of art, your life, of language as being so different between species that it changes how they perceive the world. Really fascinating. Stanislav Lem is one of my favorite writers on this very topic. In fact, I think you were mentioning video games earlier. I think Invisible was just made into a, a game that I haven't played. Um, but I, I, I wrote Fiasco recently, and that's just, wow, what a freaking amazing book. And the ending is just, oof, my brain was just left in a puddle on that. So to, to have... Um, Solaris would be another classic example and, and, and the, the, the movies kind of pulled out different parts of that kind of incomprehension um, across the, the species gap um, and we, we can't understand what really a dolphin says right or a dog my, I live with my dog and half the time I still don't understand what he's asking me for so how do we expect to make that contact across you know other other and alien alien life so that's kind of something I think about uh, I'm fascinated by it. I don't really think about it in a scholarly way. I'm not fascinated by it. Um, I have to say that a, a lingering pandemic era project that I just started, picked up again a couple of days ago, uh, was, was War and Peace. So I'm actually <laughs> need to finish that out. Um, so I'm going to put aside science fiction for the time being and, and go back into, into into Russian history. Huh. At the end of your book, you focus on the question of whether humans will ever be able to figure out the mysteries underlying consciousness. And I'm curious how you'd answer that question. Does it seem possible that researchers could achieve a breakthrough in understanding the nature of consciousness, say, in the next 20 years? And if it doesn't seem possible that the biggest questions can be answered, what are the likeliest discoveries related to consciousness that could be made? Yeah, so I'm by disposition an optimist. I think probably most scientists are you kind of have to be it's a hard hard profession and most of the time research just fails right or, or it doesn't go anywhere shall we it doesn't bail out right so i'm an optimist about the human capacity to understand the universe i think that these things that seem puzzling to now and that actually are puzzling are and the puzzle probably reflects some deep feature of 
of the physical universe, of our subjective experience, how it's constructed. But I think we're going to solve it. I think we're going to we're, we'll achieve some solution to it. And I'm excited by the idea that we'll have to transcend our current scientific framework to do that. There'll have to be some new piece, our new way of thinking that comes in that will kind of break the, the impasse in a way. I mean, there's lots of examples through history. Einstein, serial breaker of, of past intuitions, uh, that time is an external framework. You drop that, all sorts of things fall into place. Uh, so I think something like that will help us uh, with, and I think we're capable of doing that. I'm excited by the idea of what that we will do that in conjunction together in partnership with AI. And there's kind of an interesting twist here. So we know AIs think differently to the extent they think at all. They do so differently from humans. And when AIs begin to think in a way that's unequivocally thinking and that even the skeptics regard as such, uh, they will think differently from us. And that even though they're based loosely on us and even though we designed it, they'll nonetheless have their own kind of logic to them. And that is, yay, that. That's going to give a diversity, intellectual diversity that um, goes beyond all the intellectual diversity we already have across humanity. We'll take a, a, a step forward beyond that and the AI will help us. We'll be able to answer things that neither of us really could do on our own. I should say that we can do things the AIs can't. All these current ones have a lot of trouble with. So even the great successes of, of AI, like using language or image recognition, we still way outdo them on that. So, but there are a lot better chess and solving equations and things like that too. So there's kind of a, I think a partnership that will emerge um, you may have heard of the example from radiology that human radiologists catch like 97% of whatever they're looking for, tumors or aneurysms or whatever. AIs capture 97%, but that's a different 97%. So you put them together and you get something that's better than either one on its own. So I think we'll have something like that, something analogous to that with the use of AI to, to solve puzzles of consciousness, certainly. Also, a lot of puzzles we haven't yet talked about here of what is space, what is time, what is quantum theory. So, um, I, I, we're gonna we're gonna nail it. I, I, whether it's gonna happen in twenty years, that's God. I mean, humans are notoriously bad, and I am definitely in that category of, of estimating how long things take. I wake up in the morning, think oh, it'll take me five minutes to get out the door, right? And of course, two hours later, I'm still getting ready. So, I think. I'm very hesitant to put a time frame on it, but I think it'll happen. Well, whenever that breakthrough occurs, I'm going to look forward to the sequel to putting ourselves back in the equation, maybe with an AI co-author, who knows? So I'll look forward to that day. And thank you so much for being with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to George Musser, as well as Lauren Corain at Sharp Pencil Marketing, and Stephen Weil at Farrar, Strauss & Giroux for setting up the interview. For more about George's book and about the mysteries of consciousness, AI, and quantum physics, check out my blog item at cosmiclog.com. While you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. Just follow the link from Cosmic Log. Thanks to James Emley for performing the Fiction Science theme music. 
composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science Podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.